Funding for Here and Now Anytime comes from MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, accelerating the pace of engineering and science. Learn more at MathWorks.com. Hi, this is Here and Now Anytime, where we give you a little news, a little something you weren't expecting, and always a fresh, in-depth perspective on current events, arts and culture, and stories that matter. Subscribe or follow to get all our episodes out every weekday. And if you like what you hear, tell a friend about us to help spread the word. Now here's the show. If there's any ethical issue, it is simply with her as a manager in her office, but it really is completely unrelated to her suitability to be able to prosecute Donald Trump or any of the other defendants in this case. It has absolutely nothing to do with their guilt or innocence. Fonnie Willis's personal life has nothing to do with Trump's attempts at election interference, but it could still hurt her case. It's Tuesday, February 6th, and this is Here and Now Anytime from NPR and WBUR Boston. I'm Chris Bentley. Today on the show, methadone treatment is getting its first major update in decades. We'll hear how it could expand access to treatment for opioid addiction. Also, before the war, Nusreen Shahada ran a small bakery from her home in Gaza City. But whether she'll ever be able to return to that life is an open question. We're kind of avoiding that question because I can't think about baking and cooking where I know in the back of my head that my house is gone. But first... We're going to get up to speed on what's going on in Georgia, where Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis, who is prosecuting former President Trump for election interference, has admitted she was in a romantic relationship with a lawyer she hired in that case. Trump has jumped on that, calling it evidence of a conspiracy against him. Willis said there's no reason to remove her from the case, much less dismiss it. But even a delay in the case against Trump and 18 others accused of trying to subvert the 2020 election could be a big deal, especially if it pushes the trial past the November election. We often call up Barbara McQuaid for some reasoned analysis of legal situations like this. She's a law professor at the University of Michigan and former U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan, appointed by President Obama. She spoke with Deepa Fernandez. The Fulton County Superior Court Judge Scott McCarthy has scheduled this hearing last week. Then Willis asked him to cancel it, saying there is no conflict of interest. So what are we expecting next in this case? I I still think that the court wants to um, understand the full ramifications of um, the arrangement that she has with Nathan Wade. I do think she um, raises a really important distinction about what a conflict of interest is in a case against a defendant. So and let me just say, Nathan, well, Nathan Wade is the prosecutor who she hired and, and has admitted to having a relationship with? Yes. So conflicts of interest can arise in a number of contexts for a prosecutor. One is between the prosecutor and the defendant. And if that happens, that can be a basis for removal. For example, mm-hmm. um, Fonnie Willis herself was found to have a conflict of interest when she was investigating um, a, a candidate for lieutenant governor in the state of Georgia. And she was removed from that case because she hosted a fundraiser for that person's opponent. That could cause people to fairly question her impartiality as a prosecutor in the case. That's because uh, conflicts of interest that are on 
opposite sides of the V in the verses in a case are conflicts that could affect the fair trial rights of a defendant. This conflict of interest that she may have relates to her duties as a supervisor of a prosecutor's office. It may be that uh, she gave favors to someone with whom she's having a romantic relationship or overpaid someone uh, because she's having a romantic relationship or is benefiting herself from those payments. Mm. That could be a problem for her ethically, but it should not be a problem for this case. And so I think the court wants to get to the bottom of that. And if determines that this conflict solely relates to her role as manager and not as lawyer in uh, this case against the Trump defendants, then I think he will say this is a matter for the county to sort out as a matter of ethics and the case may proceed. And I want to ask you, because Willis has said the relationship didn't start until after she hired Nathan Wade. She's also called the allegations meritless and malicious. She also spoke at a black church in Atlanta last month and said racism was behind the scrutiny of her. There's a lot there. Tell us more about her her exact line of defense right now. Yeah, you know, certainly she has been attacked for her race. Um, Even Donald Trump has called her a racist prosecutor for bringing this case against him well before these allegations. But I think that, you know, to call this particular criticism racism um, maybe misses the point. Um, She said, I hired three prosecutors and they're only attacking me about one. But now, as she admits, well, there's only one with whom she's having a personal relationship. So it it seems to me a bit out of line to say that the only reason that she's being targeted here is because of her race. Perhaps race is intertwined with it. Wade, out of those three, is the only black. The other two are white prosecutors. Absolutely. And so perhaps race is intertwined with it. But, of course, it is also the case that Wade is the only one with whom she has now admitted to having a personal relationship. I think it's a fair criticism, um, but I don't know that it makes her disqualified from this case. And how high is the bar for removing a DA on a case like this? They would have to show that she has a conflict of interest as to these defendants. And so I think what we've seen now, and I think the reason that Fonnie Willis is asking to call off the hearing, is that she has now admitted to having this relationship. And if there's any ethical issue, it is simply with her as a manager in her office and with the county that oversees her supervision of the office. That is an issue that she will have to deal with. But it really is completely unrelated to her suitability to be able to prosecute Michael Roman, the defendant who filed this motion, or Donald Trump or any of the other defendants in this case, and has absolutely nothing to do with their guilt or innocence. So so maybe it's more about the optics of this case then, because if she isn't removed, I imagine, then, you know, Trump and and others on the case will, will go after her credibility. Well, they already have, and I'm sure they will. It should be irrelevant and inadmissible before a jury about this relationship, uh, but the extra judicial statements that are being made right now could certainly taint a future jury pool. So that's the optics in the case. And then I suppose more than op- optics are the ethics that she'll have to deal with with the county. Barbara McQuaid is a law professor at the University of Michigan, former U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan. Thank you so much, Barbara. Thank you, Diva. Coming up next, methadone has long been used to wean people off opioids. After the break, we'll hear how new rules for how clinics can use the drug could help them reach more people suffering from addiction. Robin Young picks it up when we return. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Humana. Employees are the heartbeat of your business. 
That's why Humana offers group dental, vision, life, and disability plans designed to protect them. Exceptional service, broad networks, and modern benefits. That's the power of human care. This episode's sponsor is PwC, which offers the following message. A robot may not be coming for your job, but competitors are coming for your market share. PwC pairs the right tech with the right solutions to help you gain a competitive edge. Reimagine operations from the cloud, fuel innovation with responsible AI, and detect risks before they become headlines. Human-led and tech-powered, it's all part of the new equation from PwC. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Bluehost. Try Bluehost Cloud, the hosting plan made for WordPress creators by WordPress experts. With 100% uptime, fast load times, and 24-7 support, your sites can handle high traffic spikes. Visit Bluehost.com. Well, let's take a look now at new rules just issued by the federal government set to take place in April. Standards for methadone treatment for opioid addiction, the first major update in decades. Studies show people taking the medication to reduce or quit heroin or opioids are 60% less likely to die of an opioid overdose. These new rules aim to increase access to methadone. Lev Fasher covers addiction for our editorial partners at Stat News, the health and medicine publication. Hi, Lev. Hi, Robin. And you've been following this for a while. They've been working on these rules for a while. Remind us, methadone's been around since the 70s. It's a long-term treatment, unlike Narcan, a one-time way to try to save someone who is overdosing. How is methadone administered now in these clinics? So people go into methadone clinics for the most part every day, and they swallow a small cup of this medication, which is used long-term to treat opioid addiction. It's essentially a weak opioid used to help people using a substance like heroin or fentanyl stop using the dangerous illicit drug without feeling withdrawal effects. Now, the department within uh, Health and Human Services wanted to make that access easier. So how do these new rules do that? Essentially, these rules make it easier for patients to start treatment in a number of ways. Clinics are allowed to offer higher doses because in the era of fentanyl, very often the dose that patients are receiving on day one at the clinic is nowhere near high enough to stave off those really excruciating withdrawal symptoms. The guidelines also essentially codify a lot of emergency protocols that were put into place during COVID-19 that allowed clinics to be much more generous with what they call take-home medication. So instead of coming in every morning, they can give patients methadone to take home, keep in their fridge, take every morning, and it's a much less disruptive mode of treatment. Because as you point out, there are about 600,000 patients across the country who get this methadone treatment from about 2,000 specialized clinics. But many of them called the treatment and the methadone liquid handcuffs because they felt it was too restrictive. They had to go too many times to the clinic. Some people had jobs, schooling. So these new rules aim to get more access. But what is the argument from the clinics? And we have to remember that, you know, as we said, methadone is a medication, but as you pointed out, it's an opioid. You can also overdose from methadone. So tell us more about what some of the clinics are saying about why they want to keep access tighter. You're absolutely right. Methadone is a serious medication. It's an opioid, and the way that different people metabolize it really varies. So if methadone 
is misused. If you use it in combination with alcohol or other drugs, there are bad things that can happen, like overdose. However, most cases of methadone overdose are actually among people who are prescribed the medication for pain or sometimes who are just using medication that wasn't prescribed to them. It's pretty rare for people to overdose on methadone that's prescribed to them for the purpose of treating opioid addiction. Nonetheless, clinics are really sensitive both to public perception and to safety. And remember that this is a really stigmatized medication. Even in this day and age, when the whole country is generally sympathetic to the opioid crisis and wants to see fewer people dying of overdoses, it's really hard to open a new methadone clinic. If you go into a neighborhood and say you're opening a clinic, you're going to get a lot of pushback. So clinics are really wary of being seen as responsible for any increase in any bad thing happening associated with methadone treatment, even if on net, getting more methadone out to more people means fewer people will die. Well, but then as you write, you have people on the other side of the debate, Representative Don Norcross of New Jersey, who says these clinics are de facto monopolies, cartels, he calls them. People are arguing for certain doctors to also be able to prescribe methadone? Yeah, it's worth backing up and reflecting on the methadone clinic system in general. There's an entire infrastructure in the U.S., as you say, about 2,000 clinics that are set up to dispense a single very common medication. So there's no really equivalent to that in American medicine. This is a singular thing. And as stigmatized as methadone is, it's an incredibly effective medication that is underutilized at a time that tens of thousands of people are dying of opioid overdoses every year. So the argument from Norcross and a few other lawmakers is that any doctor with specialized training and addiction is totally capable of providing methadone from a doctor's office dispensed by a pharmacy, really like any other medication. And it's worth noting that doctors can do that with OxyContin, the number of other opioids that pharmacologically are more powerful than methadone. Funnily enough, methadone is the one opioid that has these really tight restrictions, even though it's the opioid used to treat opioid addiction. Lev Fasher, addiction reporter for Stat News. Lev, thank you. Thank you, Robin. Coming up, the story of a dentist who started getting some attention for her side business, baking chocolate brownies and cookies, until war upended her life. After the break, Deepa Fernandez introduces us to Nusreen Shahada in Gaza. Stick around. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Teladoc Health. There are lots of reasons for wanting to be healthy. Family, work, living a fuller life. Teladoc Health understands. Whether you have diabetes, high blood pressure, or just need to manage your weight, Teladoc Health can help. Visit TeladocHealth.com slash What's Your Why for more information. That's T-E-L-A-D-O-C Health slash What's Your Why. This message comes from NPR sponsor Viore, a new perspective on performance apparel. Clothing designed with premium fabrics, built to move in, styled for life. For 20% off your first purchase, go to viore.com slash NPR. Support for NPR and the following message come from Betterment, an automated investing and savings app. 
CEO Sarah Levy shares why Betterment believes cash can be a strategic choice. There are times when the market is volatile, when customers are a little nervous about investing. We came to understand that there was an opportunity to introduce cash as part of an investing strategy and to give back yields to the customer. Learn more about high-yield cash accounts at Betterment.com. Investing involves risk. Performance not guaranteed. Cash reserve offered through Betterment LLC and Betterment Securities. Betterment is not a bank. Support for NPR and the following message come from the Lemelson Foundation, dedicated to improving lives through invention, innovation, and climate action. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is in Egypt today trying to broker a ceasefire that would stop Israel's war with Hamas in Gaza. The harrowing conditions inside the Gaza Strip are difficult to comprehend, in part because cell phone and internet services often shut down. Social media feeds from residents and Gaza journalists have been an intermittent but valuable source of news. For months now, our producer Hafsa Qureshi has followed the TikTok and Instagram accounts of a dentist in Gaza who is also a baker of delectable breads and pastries. Nasreen Shihada is 26 years old. Now her social media documents life as a displaced Gazan living in cramped quarters along the southern region of Rafah. Earlier today, we spoke with Nasreen Shihada. The line was intermittent, but we managed to talk. Hi, how are you? I'm doing well, thank you. Describe to me, Nasreen, exactly where you are and what's happening around you right now in Rafah. It's been very crowded, full of people. And lately we've been hearing uh, bombings that are becoming very close to us. We are afraid because after Rafah we have no place else to go. We've evacuated our house from the north and now we are in the south. And there's no place left for us to go to. And that's where you are today. So much has changed for you, Nasreen. Your house, your parents' house in the north, it's all gone. So I, I wonder if you can just take us back for a moment to life before October 7, before you're living amidst this danger in Rafa. You were a dentist and your husband taught accounting at the Al-Azhar University. Tell me about that. Before all of this, I was like full of dreams, but now life somehow feels empty. It's been four months waiting for us and our houses, our workplaces got destroyed. So life has been very meaningless and very vague, let's say. We can see, Nasreen, from your TikTok videos and your and your Insta videos, you know, that you had a beautiful home, a kitchen, um, you know, lovely things that you baked with and cooked with. And now all of that is gone. I'm wondering how that feels for you, even as you say, you know, it's been four months of nothing. What does that loss feel like? I think when you've been under all of this for four months, the kind of the trauma you've been living and you've been seeing can affect you and affect how you react to loss. Like before all of this, if a plate in my kitchen is broken, I would feel very sad and very depressed about it because I appreciate my kitchen so much and my kitchen stuff. But right now, I think um, I, I just can't process the fact that my house is gone, especially that I couldn't see it 
because we've been displaced in the south. So for me, it's just like a nightmare that I can't process yet. Mm-hmm. You know, you're you're not living in a tent, though many people are, but you're sharing a small apartment with 25 of your family members. You know, that must be, on the one hand, you know, really nice that you can all be together, but it must also be really hard to to not be in your homes. Yeah, yeah, of course. Being displaced has its own hardships, especially when you have to live with other people. Like before this, I was living alone with my husband, so I'm kind of used to the quiet and calm life. Right now, I'm living in a very crowded house. I've been sleeping on the floor. We've been struggling to like get our supplies because of our large number. And, you know, we've been living together all the time. You you can't get, like, a moment for yourself to connect with everything and to process what you've been living. Me and my family, we've been displaced three times now. And it's really hard to find safety. Like, at any moment, your life can be literally turned upside down and you won't know where to go because literally there are no places that are left for us. And on top of all of that, we have to search constantly for our for life essentials, everything like water, flour, and food, which can be hard, you know, because we're not used to live like this. Mm. You know, Nasreen, it, it strikes me that you are a baker. You make bread. That is a staple that, you know, people need to survive. And you made beautiful bread and beautiful pastries and cakes and food how how are you doing that now? Are you able to bake bread for your family at least? As a food blogger, like my ideal answer would be like I enjoy baking bread, I enjoy baking pastries, and I love this. But this is like isn't the situation right now. Uh, like bread is considered a luxury because of the limitations of the food supplies, and we have to bake to survive it's it's as simple as this because there's no bakeries are open right now the flour is very limited the water is very limited so it isn't like an easy process because i know that we have to bake in order to survive not i have to bake because this is fun and that i'm enjoying it and and where are you getting your ingredients from how are you actually baking i i know in your Instagram feed, there's there's a video of baking bread in a tent, and I think most people wouldn't even be able to imagine how. Can you describe that process for us? We've been receiving some aids from the UNRWA, UN, but I have to say that they are very limited and very insufficient. Like most of the time, we received aids once or twice a week, which only lost us for one meal. So we had to depend on ourselves for most of our needs. But the problem is that due to the high demand and limited supply of goods, as the borders are closed, the prices in the markets are very, very high. So in a process like baking a bread, we have to be very careful with the ingredients. For instance, we can't use much yeast because yeast is so expensive and not found anymore. So the flour also, the water is the same thing. You know, everything, we have to be careful of what we are using because we know that 
there isn't like enough supply of it and it's very limited. About the process of baking the bread, so usually you bake the bread in your oven, but we don't have ovens because we don't have electricity or gas. Uh, so there's this device that <laughs> used to work on electricity before. It's like a small baker machine that uh, Gazan people now turned it into something that can work on coal. So we can bake our own bread. And even coal is very limited. So we are, we've been struggling through the, the whole process. And we have to make bread every day because, as I mentioned before, bakers are closed. Mm. Nasreen, do you talk at all about the future? Do you, do you want to go back to baking and cooking your gorgeous baked goods and global cuisines? Because you talk in your videos about when when you can move back north, but you, your home is in rubble. I wonder how you think about starting again. I think as a family, we've been avoiding asking this question to each other and we've been avoiding even talking about it because we literally don't know how the future will look like. My kitchen is now gone, so I, I don't think that I can I can think about baking and cooking where I know in the back of my head that my my house is gone. But for sure, if if we were allowed to go back to the north, then we will figure out something out. We can work on rebuilding again, and maybe someday, one day in the future, I'll I'll have my kitchen. And I want to help rebuild Gaza again. I want to help rebuild our healthcare system as a dentist, and I want to make a change in my country. I, I don't think life can be restored immediately, or can be like how it was before but somehow we can work forward we can work on this to make it somehow as it was before or even better let's hope that Nasreen Shihada she's a dentist a content creator and a self-taught chef in Gaza thank you so much for talking with us Nasreen and stay safe thank you for having me today and if you visit our website at hereandnow.org, we will link to Nasreen's Instagram and TikTok accounts so you can see her beautiful creations. That's our show. It comes from the team behind Here and Now from NPR and WBUR Boston. Today's stories were produced by Jill Ryan, Thomas Danielian, and Hafsa Qureshi. Today's editors were Todd Munt, Peter O'Dowd, Micaela Rodriguez, and Kat Welch. Technical direction from Mike Moschetto and Caleb Green. Mike Moschetto also wrote our theme music, along with Max Liebman and me, Chris Bentley. Our digital producers are Allison Hagen and Grace Griffin. And the executive producer of Here and Now is Carlene Watson. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with you tomorrow. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Capella University. With Capella's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Online. Is your child asking questions on their homework you don't feel equipped to answer? IXL Learning uses advanced algorithms to give the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. One subscription gets you everything. One site for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. 
Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And NPR listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com NPR.